Let me pray for us as we come to the Word together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you are a loving Father. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts now as we come to your Word. Father, we pray that you would grant us understanding. May your Spirit shed light and plant your Word deep in our hearts so that we might know you, trust you, and exalt your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Gyasu, competitive, materialistic, and self-centered. According to a survey of national values in 2018, these are among the top 10 defining characteristics of Singapore society based on, a, based on the survey of about 2,000 respondents. So this is how they described society here. The Oxford English Dictionary defines kiasu, and yes, it is an official word in the dictionary, as a selfish, grasping attitude arising from a fear of mis- So FOMO isn't a new thing. You know, we've been doing it all along. We choke tables with tissue packets. We join long queues for food. We wait overnight for the latest mobile phone model or the limited edition Hello Kitty doll. We even wait over, or we even work. We work harder and longer to outdo our colleagues, neighbors, and friends. You know, this self-reliant survival of the fittest mentality drives us to put our own interests before others. And this is what the culture looks like. This is where we live. If this is what the culture looks like, then what should God's people be? What is a defining characteristic of elect exiles? Right? You know, they, if, if we do a survey of Christians, you know, what would we say are the defining characteristics or values that we should have as the people of God? Should we look just like the culture or should we look different? As we heard last week, God calls us to live distinct lives for His glory. Peter says in verse 12 in chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, what, are these, uh, what are these good deeds? You know, how do we keep our conduct in an unbelieving world honorable? What does that look like? In the very next verse, Peter tells us what this means. Verse 13, be subject. Be subject. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Indeed, this command to submit, to be subject, is the main command in, the, in, these, in this section of uh, 1 Peter from 2 verse 13 to 3 verse 7. You know, three times, Peter uh, exhorts Christians to be subject, you know, first to the government and then next in two key areas of our lives, in work and in marriage. In our passage today, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters. And then in 3, verse 1, wives, be subject to your own husband. You know, this sounds really foreign, doesn't it? You know, we, we don't often think about submission. You know, you know, when you show up at work tomorrow, that's not the first thing on your mind, right? How can I submit in my place of work? I don't think that's the first thing that we think about often when we step into the office on a Monday morning. In a kiasu world where so many are caught up with pursuing their own gain, the notion of submitting to others, of putting our interests aside to serve someone else seems strange, perhaps even weak or foolish. Yet this is exactly how God wants us to live. Peter says it three times in his letter. 
From God's perspective, submission isn't silly. It is a mark of Christ-likeness. Living as elect exiles means walking in the steps of Jesus, the servant king. And this passage exhorts us and challenges us to live a servant. Why? Because this is how we follow the suffering servant. So those are the two key points that we'll go through this morning. First one, live a servant-hearted life. You know, our passage is structured a bit like a sandwich. So there are two slices of bread. And the two slices of bread are really the two main commands on either side of the meat. So the meat is actually in verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2, which gives us the reason, the grounds, or the rationale for why we submit. But let's look at first at the commands to submit. You know, Peter speaks first to the servants or, or slaves. He says to them in verse 18, be subject to your masters. You know, now, in New Testament times, servants or slaves had no legal rights. Right? They were subject to their master's control for better or for worse. You know, the Bible doesn't condone slavery, but at the same time, the New Testament doesn't advocate a kind of social revolution either. Instead, the New Testament encourages Christians to live godly lives within the existing social structures. You know, believers are meant to be salt and light wherever they are. And I think this is important because we may not be able to change these big macro structures in society, but we can trust the gospel to change us. You may not be able to change your circumstances at work, you may not be able to change your boss and the way your boss treats you, but you can trust the gospel to change you and how you respond to your boss, to your circumstances as we live in this world. And, and that is empowering, isn't it? It means that we're not helpless. It means that we're not passive victims of our circumstances, but that empowers us to live lives that are pleasing to God, regardless of our circumstances. You know, the culture in the New Testament, uh, in New Testament times, it objectified slaves as property. But through the gospel, slaves become God's treasured possession, bought by the precious blood of His Son. They have worth, they have dignity, they have value, not because of their work, not because of their social economic status, but simply because they belong to God. Right? So, and so it is for us. What gives us true value and significance is not the work that we do. It's not how well we perform in life, but what gives us value and dignity is the fact that we belong to a loving Father. He gives us significance and meaning and value. And Peter recognizes that. That's why Peter addresses servants directly, which is quite unheard of in the New Testament world. You, you won't speak to servants directly. You speak to their boss, right? Because servants are non-entities. Right? They, they don't have legal rights. So why, why speak to them? But, but Peter does something rather out of the culture. Right? He speaks to them directly, implying that they have moral agency, implying that they have responsibilities. They have standing before God, and therefore they need to hear what it means for them to live in obedience to God as well. And then Peter says to them, be subject to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, which literally means crooked. Be subject to crooked, wicked masters as well. Like, wow. Submission doesn't depend on whether the master deserves it. A bad employer is no excuse for being insubordinate or irresponsible. Now, of course, submission doesn't mean 
sinning because our boss says so. You know, submission doesn't mean just passively being abused. That there is legal recourse if you face abuse or other forms of unjust treatment in the workplace. But what submission does mean is like Joseph ser- serving Potiphar and Pharaoh in Egypt in the Old Testament. Submission means working faithfully, working with integrity. Submission means putting in an honest day's work, not because our boss deserves it, but because we seek to follow Jesus and we seek the good of our employer. In fact, Peter says we are to do good even if we suffer for it. Now, I think this challenges us to reflect on who we are truly working for. If we are motivated by personal gain, right? if you show up at the office and you say, I'm in it for myself, then we'll have little incentive to do good work when we're not rewarded or recognized. You know, if, if, we, if we go to the office and say, okay, I, I better do my work because my boss is looking at me, or I better do my work because my colleagues and clients, uh, I, need, I need their approval, if that's what motivates us, then we might do the work, but our hearts may still be full of complaining, anger, and resentment. You know, just, just think about our own, the way we think about our work, the way we talk about our work. You know, what characterizes our conversations about work? Is it anger, bitterness, complaining? I think that says a lot about the state of our own hearts, reveals really who we are working for. So who should we be working for? If not ourselves, if not even our boss, then who should we be working for? Verse 18 says we are to be subject to our masters with all respect. And and I I put it to us that a better translation of that phrase is probably with all fear. The the word respect is literally fear in the original language. Now, of course, Peter is saying not the fear of man, but the fear of God. The fear of God. And and he's sort of picking up on this idea that he's already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 17 where Peter says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. To fear God is to reverence him, to worship him, to honour him. And Peter wants us to see that our work is an aspect of our worship. You don't leave God behind on Mondays. He's with you in your work. You worship Him with how you do your work. And that's why Peter is able to say in verse 19, we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. How? By being mindful of God, by thinking on Him, by by looking to Him, by setting our hopes in Him, on Him. We don't focus on ourselves or our circumstances, but we look to God because we live as servants of God. You know, verse 16 In chapter 2, Peter says it very strongly, we are slaves of God. Use your freedom as slaves of God to serve Him. We work for Him. He is our boss. He's the one we really work for. You know, several, there have been some HR studies being done and some surveys being carried out. And according to one HR survey, about 40% of employees surveyed are going to quit within the next six months. You know, this was a survey not just in Singapore, but across the region. So HR practitioners have talked about a, a tsunami of resignations that's going to happen. 
40% of the workforce is going to quit in the next six months. Anyway, I don't know whether they do engagement scores in your place of work. You know, some workplaces have engagement scores. And generally, engagement scores are pretty low wherever we work. Right? I, I think people talk about fatigue, burnout, and I just came across this new phrase called bore out. Right? People are so bored with their work that they, you know, they, they just want to quit because they're so bored. Right? So people are not just overworked, they are perhaps underworked in some places. How, how do we thrive in this kind of work culture? This is, this is where we work, friends. This is the culture in which we face every Monday to Friday. I think Peter tells us we work despite our circumstances. We don't look to our circumstances, but we work for God. He is the one on whom we set our hope. And because we hope in Him, Peter says we can patiently bear with less than ideal work circumstances. We can patiently bear with even unjust suffering while doing good in the workplace. Our earthly bosses may be unappreciative. Our earthly bosses may be horrible, may be really unreasonable. But our work will not go unnoticed by the boss who truly matters. Our work will not go unnoticed by our heavenly master. That's why Peter says in verse 20, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God sees. Right? You know, think, think about that when we show up for work tomorrow. God sees whatever we do, whatever we bear with, whatever we endure. God sees even if our colleagues, our customers, clients, or our boss doesn't. Now, here's some motivation for Monday. Colossians 3, 22-24, I think Paul picks up on some of these ideas as well. And he says, Bond servants, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service. You know, don't just do work when people are looking at you. Not as people pleasers, right? Don't work because you fear man. But with sincerity of heart. Who should you fear? Fear the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And I put it to us that nothing else will really motivate us to work in a way that honours Christ, except this. So Peter's, Peter's focus then shifts from work to family, right, to marriage. And he speaks to, hus- to wives and then to husbands in 3 verses 1 to 7. So Peter talks about a servant-hearted life in marriage. So what does that look like? He says first to the wives in verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. You know, notice it's your own husbands. So not to all men in general, not to every husband in general, but to your own husbands. And, and the word likewise doesn't mean that the marriage relationship is like the slave-master relationship. So that's not, what, that's not Peter's point. Rather, the word likewise it's meant to show that wives are meant to sh- demonstrate the same Christ-like humility to their husbands as servants show their masters. You know, s- submission doesn't imply inequality or inferiority. You know, after all, the Bible speaks of Jesus in the same way. But the Bible says Jesus is subject, same, same verb, Jesus is subject to God the Father. 
Therefore, we know because Jesus is fully God, He's in no way inferior to the Father, obviously. So in the same way, wives are not inferior to their husbands simply because they are called to be subject. A wife submits not because she is worse than her husband. And it doesn't mean that her husband is always right. It simply means that a wife is to respect and honour her husband, who is the head of the household, according to God's design for marriage. What if, what if the husband isn't a Christian? You know, Peter is speaking to a situation where you know, there are these marriages where the wife has become a Christian subsequently, but the husband has not. Right? So what do we do in those situations when you have sort of like a, an, a believing, unbelieving marriage? Right? What, what should the wives do? So what does what Peter counsel? So in New Testament times, a wife was expected to adopt her husband's religion. You know, I think this is still quite common in many cultures and in many places in the world today. Right? A wife is expected to follow her husband, in including what he believes in. And in New Testament times, this was seen as good for the social order. So Christians with unbelieving spouses were accused of being bad for society. This is not good for the social order. So what do you do? Should you continue in that marriage? What does that look like? Should you give up the faith in order to just follow your husband's religion? What does Peter say? He says, for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of the witness of the gospel, Peter urges wives to still submit to their unbelieving husbands. He says, even if some do not obey the word, you are still subject to them. Why, why can wives do that? Because Peter says submission is for the Lord's sake. Not because the husband is ultimately deserving. Because face it, husbands, you know, who of us can say that we truly deserve for our wives to follow us? So submission is not because the husband is deserving, but it's for the Lord's sake. You know, I, I do quite a fair bit of premarital counselling with different couples, and this often comes up in our discussions with the couples, right? You know, oftentimes the, the woman would ask, you know, my, 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 to, my soon-to-be husband is not infallible. You know, how can I submit to him? He'll make mistakes. You know, he might lead me in not-so-good places. How, how do I submit to him? And then the men who are more self-aware, right? Uh, the, the men realize that as well. I mean, the men would ask, how can I expect this woman to follow me? How can I expect my wife to be to submit to me? Because I'm infallible. I, I see my own struggles. I, I see how I'm still sinful. How can I expect submission? But I, I put it to us that this passage says submission doesn't finally depend on our spouse. We submit for the Lord's sake because He, not our spouse, because He is good. You know, notice how the goal in, in Peter's writing here is not, he's not giving marriage advice, actually. Peter's not giving us you know, a tip for a better marriage. Peter's point in these verses is not just to help people have a better marriage, although it's true that a wife's submission may help her relationship with her husband. But Peter's point is to tell the wives that your purpose in your marriage is to proclaim the goodness of the God who saves you. 
2 verse 9, right? Your, your, God has saved us to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So you submit, not because you're just in it for a better marriage, but you submit because that's how you proclaim the excellencies of God. The wives are to submit to unbelieving husbands so that their husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That's the rest of verse 1. You know, this doesn't mean that husbands don't need to hear the gospel. You know, the fact that they do not obey the word implies that they have already heard. But instead of nagging their husbands, instead of just kind of you know, hammering their husbands all the time, with, you know, why aren't you a Christian, why aren't you a Christian? You know, wives are to let their lives do the talking. And they commend the gospel to their husbands through their respectful and pure conduct. Verse 2. You know, many of us may have heard of uh, this church father named uh, Augustine. And some of us may have heard the story of how Augustine's mother, Monica, was instrumental in Augustine's conversion. Monica was a really faithful mother who prayed for her son regularly that he would turn from sin and put his faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, what is less well known is, the, is also how Augustine Monica was instrumental in the conversion of her husband, Augustine's father, as well. And I just came across this quote from Augustine's confession as I was preparing this sermon. Uh, Augustine writes of his mother, she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. It's such a beautiful description. I think it comes straight out of First Peter, doesn't it? I mean, the words are so similar. And the word respectful in verse 2 is literally, again, in fear. That's the same word again, in fear. You know, wives, like servants, are to fear God, not their husbands. You know, biblical submission is not blind, cowering subservience. Biblical submission does not mean tolerating or accepting her husband's sin, whether it's his abuse or his infidelity. You know, I know that these verses have been twisted, right? They've been perverted and twisted to excuse the sins of husbands against their wives. Right? Husbands say, I, you submit, right? I sin against you, you just submit. No, that's not true. That's a terrible, sinful perversion of these verses. Biblical submission is for the Lord's sake. And God is glorified when wives seek their husband's spiritual good. Seek their spiritual good. And allowing your husband to continue sinning without calling him to repentance is not seeking his spiritual good. In fact, that's harming him. That's allowing him to continue on a path to destruction. God is glorified when a wife seeks her husband's spiritual good. That, that's the heart of biblical submission. And I'll speak to wives. There may be some wives listening to this sermon who are in difficult places in marriage. Your husband may be sinning against you in serious, significant ways. And I want to speak to you that you should not suffer in silence, but you should seek godly, wise counsel from a trusted Christian friend. You know, if, if you're able to, come, come speak with one of the elders or come speak with one of our wives. We'd be happy to spend time with you and just hear you 
and, and, and see how we can counsel you and encourage you. So don't, don't suffer in silence. Like if you are in a position where your husband is sitting against you, this, this text does, it, does not tell you to simply submit and do nothing. Right? Seek his good by seeking godly counsel. Godly submission flows from a heart that trusts God. For this reason, Peter encourages women to cultivate inner beauty. He says to them in verses 3 and 4, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You know, the world's obsession with physical appearance exacts a terrible price on women. You know, women are pressured to live up to cultural expectations of beauty, of attractiveness. You know, some of us may have heard the term body shaming. You know, but the biblical definition of beauty liberates women. You know, this passage is not oppressive. This passage is not, uh, it doesn't oppress women, but this passage is liberating. This passage frees women from the burden of trying to keep up appearances, of trying to gain her husband's approval. This passage is about true beauty, a beauty that will never fade away. Why? Because it displays the character of Christ. Jesus himself is gentle and lowly in heart. That's true beauty, and that's the kind of beauty that Peter exhorts wives to cultivate, or women to cultivate. And in fact, I think indirectly, Peter is saying to men, this is the kind of beauty that we should look for in a woman as well. So those who are single men among us, are we looking for this kind of beauty in a potential life partner? Right? Be honest, right? are we attracted to someone because this person looks attractive in the eyes of the world? Or are we attracted to this person because this person displays the character of Christ? Be honest. Husbands, you know, how are we encouraging and cultivating our wives in this way? Are we encouraging them to be truly beautiful by encouraging them to grow in Christ-likeness? And are we doing things in the home that help them to grow in Christ-likeness? Are we leading them towards Christ so that it makes it easy for them to follow us as we follow Jesus. Husbands, be honest. Something for us to think about. When a wife submits to her husband in this way, she displays the beauty of Christ to him. And this is precious and valuable in God's sight. And what matters most is that God is pleased. It's not her husband's approval. It's not even her marriage getting better. But it's the fact that God is pleased. He sees, right? Again, He sees and He will reward. I think oftentimes pride prevents us from being servant-hearted because pride wants to be in control. Pride ultimately doesn't trust anyone to care for us. So we think we need to look out for ourselves, right? That's at the heart of being kyasu. I need to look out for my own interests because no one else will. So pride keeps us from actually submitting to someone else. But submission honors God because it shows that we trust Him. This is how the holy women of the Old Testament were able to submit to their own husbands. They, Peter tells us in verse 5, they hoped in God. You know, that, that's really the key. Right? That, that's the secret to how we submit. Don't, don't hope in your boss. 
don't even hope in your husband or your wife, but hope in God. Trust Him. Do what He says. And leave the outcomes to Him, knowing that He is good and He cares for you and He loves you. And as Dan Chai read from 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves before the hand of God. He cares for you. So submission is a measure of our confidence in God. Our ability to submit comes from our hope in Him. And by doing good and submitting to their own husbands, you know, Christian women, wives, are showing that they are the spiritual daughters of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And they're continuing her legacy of faith and hope. Then in verse 7, Peter turns his attention to married men. He says to them, likewise, so in a similar way, right, just as wives worship God in this way, husbands, you worship God in this way. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Uh, Peter's command protects the dignity and value of women, especially at a time when it was acceptable to lord it over their wives. So what does it mean for husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way? Well, the phrase is literally according to knowledge. So knowledge of what? So it could mean live with your wives according to your knowledge of them, right? Understand them, know them, know what makes them tick, know how to encourage them, know how to love them well. So that could be one possible meaning of knowledge. Another possible meaning is that it refers to the knowledge of God, right? Live with your wives according to your knowledge of God because you know God, because you know His will, you know His truth, so obey Him in the way you relate to your wife. And what is God's will for husbands? Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. That's God's will for us, husbands. Love our wives self-sacrificially. Husbands, honour your wives as the weaker vessel. Now, okay, we need to be quite careful as we think about what this means. It obviously doesn't mean that the wives are inferior because later on in the same passage, Peter speaks of wives as equal heirs of the grace of life. They are joint heirs, right? They, they are of equal standing before God. So in no way are they inferior. So that's, what, that's not what weaker vessel means. But I, I just put it to us that weaker simply means that women are generally physically weaker than men. I know that's, a, that's a, again, that's a generalization, I know some women in the church who power lift, who do CrossFit, and I say they are a lot stronger than I am. But this is a generalization, right? So generally, women are physically weaker than men. And Peter is saying to the husbands, don't take advantage of them. Don't use your strength to oppress them. Right? Love them. Honor them. The Bible prohibits any form of abuse or harsh treatment. In fact, God will not heed the prayers of husbands who do not honour their wives. Husbands, God cares deeply about our marriages. Our relationships with our spouse affects our relationship with God. You know, we can't claim to know and serve God and love Him if we do not honour our wives, regardless of what we do. You know, whether, whether you're a pastor or not, you cannot 
serve God without honouring your wife. The health of our marriage matters to our spiritual health. How are we honouring our wives? I, I think this passage challenges us husbands to come to our wives humbly and to ask them this simple question, how can I love and cherish you better? Maybe this afternoon, have a quiet conversation with them and ask them, how can I love and cherish you better? And don't just do it for them. Do it because your spiritual standing before God depends on it. Your prayer life, your, your life of worship to God depends on this. You know, Peter's instructions here are not exhaustive. You, know, you might wonder, hey, how come he doesn't talk about the bosses? What, what are bosses supposed to do? You know, how come he doesn't talk about parents or, or children? And how come husbands only get one verse and <laughs> wives get so many verses? Right? You know, Peter's, Peter's instructions are not exactly exhaustive, are they? Now, for instance, if you're single, and some of us here are single, if you're single, you may think, you know, there isn't anything here for me, right? Because I'm not married. So I asked uh, Bibiana, our women's ministry worker, what she thought about this passage. You know, she's unmarried. And I wanted to hear how she, she responded to this passage. And her reply was very insightful. She said, actually, this passage is not just about work or marriage. Right? The, the heart of this passage is about cultivating a posture of heart before God, a, a humble godly attitude of submission to Him. That's really the, the crux of our passage. So whether you are working or not, whether you are married or not, the heart of this passage is about how we can submit to God. How do we worship Him and fear Him in the way we live our lives? You know, I would say, I would say Bibiana is exactly right. While Peter focuses on servants and wives, his intention is to call all of us, as Jesus followers, to live servant-hearted lives. Servant-hearted submission should be a defining characteristic of God's people. You know, if someone were to do a survey of Christians, you know, the values of Christians, I, I pray that this will come up at least in the top ten. Right? You define Christians by submission, by the way they are subject, by the way they submit to God first and then to the authorities in their lives. Why do we do this? It seems so out of place in the culture. It seems to go against the grain of our hearts. You know, why do we do this? It's because we follow the suffering servant. So we go back to verses 21 to 25 in chapter 2, this last point as we wrap up. Peter tells us in verses 21 to 25, right? To this you have been called, verse 21. What is this? This refers to doing good while suffering unjustly. God has called us to do good and to suffer for it. That's our calling. That's what it means to be a Christian. This is the cost of discipleship. And friends, beloved, this, this is the normal Christian life. To, to suffer while doing good is not extraordinary. It is not unexpected. It is not abnormal. It is the normal Christian life. It's a humbling thing to think about. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it well. 
Right? The famous quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Following Jesus becomes, means becoming more like him. So we share in him, we share in his life, we share in his suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 21. You know, I think it's amazing that Peter says this, right? Peter, of all people, says this. You know, Peter was the man who uh, refused to let Jesus suffer and die. Right? He says, you know, how, how can you say that you're going to die, Jesus? You don't say that. And now, this same Peter is saying that Christians need to walk the same path that Jesus walked. I think it shows the amazing transformation that Peter has undergone through the gospel. Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, describes a servant of the Lord who suffers to save God's people. Verse 3 in Isaiah 53, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was, and then verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Peter is saying Jesus is the suffering servant who fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. In verses 22 and 23 of our passage, Peter says of Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now, we may suffer unjustly for doing good, but only one person can claim to suffer as someone who is truly innocent. And that person is Jesus. He is the supreme example of innocent, truly innocent suffering. And how did Jesus respond to suffering? Verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus exercised faith. He believed in his heavenly Father. He hoped in his heavenly Father. But friends, how are we able to walk in Jesus' steps? How do we follow his example? You know, I think if we are honest with ourselves, when we look at our own hearts, we see selfishness, we, we see self-centeredness, we see this grasping attitude, we, we see this desire to protect, to self-protect, to want to be number one. We see these things in our own hearts. So how do we follow Jesus' example of suffering unjustly while doing good? If Jesus is to be our example, he must first be our saviour. Jesus must first save us from ourselves, from our chronic, destructive self-centeredness and selfishness. He must set us free from sinful pride and self. Now, we have all turned away from God. We've turned inwards on ourselves. And because of our rebellion against God, we deserve His judgment against us. But praise God for sending Jesus to save selfish sinners like us from our sins, from His judgment, from ourselves. And if we repent and believe in Jesus, we can be forgiven and made right with God. Peter says in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And what's the purpose of that? So that we might die to sin and live 
to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. In Christ, we die to sin. That's how we die to ourselves. It's only in Christ. Our former sinful way of life is crucified with Him. In Christ, we are raised with Him to new life. And we are able to live to righteousness, no longer living for ourselves, but living for God, for Him who saved us. You know, I think we've just seen a visible display of that this morning. We've seen for ourselves this spiritual reality demonstrated in baptism. These brothers and sisters have gone into the grave, the, the floodwaters of judgment. Right? They, they've gone under, been submerged. They've died, died to sin, died to their old sinful selves, died to their selfishness and self-centeredness. But the good news is that they haven't remained here, right? If I look in the pool, there's no one in the pool. Why? Because they've been raised with Christ to new life. Jesus has broken the whole of sin over their lives, over their hearts, and they are able now to live to righteousness. Friends, this is the secret to how we are able to live servant-hearted lives. We need Christ to break the chains of selfishness that so grip our hearts. We need to allow Him to give us new life, that we can live for Him, lives that serve Him and serve others around us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. We can entrust ourselves to Jesus because He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We can trust Him to lead and guard us to lead us to green pastures, even if it means going through the valley of the shadow of death. So, beloved, don't be kiasu. In Christ, we can live a servant-hearted life and display Him to the world. In a while, we're going to sing this closing song, but I want to quote the refrain from that song for us to meditate on as we think on this passage. It says, so I will go wherever he is calling me. I lose my life to find my life in him. I give my all to gain the hope that never dies. I bow my heart, take up my cross, and follow him. Amen. May it be said of us that we follow the suffering servant. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed for how you are kind and generous to us. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your grace and for your saving love. And Father, as we come to you, we confess the many times that we have been grasping, many times that we have been selfish and self-centered, many times that we have put ourselves as number one and we have insisted selfishly on our own way. Father, we come to you and we confess our sins against you. We confess our sins against others, against our bosses, against our colleagues, against our spouses. Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us. Father, we thank you for Jesus who has come, who has died and has raised from the dead so that we might live to righteousness. Father, help us to trust in your Son. Help us to turn to him, to find in him life and hope that we might put aside our selfishness 
that we might give ourselves to you freely and gladly, because in you we have life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.